Mic check, one, two. Tom, use your word. Hey, you. That's original freak. You need me to open this? No, fucker. <laughs> you fucking put it on me and I got it. <clears throat> hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Original Freedom Podcast. You are part of the Double Down episode. Uh, we had Andrew here this morning and got to do a really cool show as related to jumping out into the unknown. And luckily had a really good friend of ours, Will Staples, stop by and willing to sit down and give us some of his time as well. Everyone knows usually we'll, we've been around a little while now, but Nate Horgan here to my right. Um, Andrew, you met earlier, and um, Will's here. We're going to spend some time talking about a few different things. Um, Will and I, or Will and Tom and I, our whole crew got to know one another about, it's been, if you're, your kids are how old now? Four and six. Four and six. So you, you had no children when we met. Oh, man. So... Um, ages you guys a little it, bit. Yeah, it's, it's been a little while. And uh, there's a cool story around that story. Um, and we really want to take a little bit of time as well to let Will talk to us about his uh, his career as a writer out here in Hollywood, a very successful writer, um, and give us some insight into that. Maybe parlay that a little bit into how essentially Hollywood and soldiers, here we are sitting together, um, have come together over the, uh, those years as well. We just had Ma- Max Martini in here a couple days ago, right? So there's a good bit of, well, let's just say that the relationship between the warrior and Hollywood is exponentially greater than it's been in, in many decades due to the last you know, couple decades in, in combat. Um, <clears throat> and then other than that, we're going to take it from there. Um, I'd like to tee it up by saying, if you watched our last uh, episode, we talked about moving out into the unknown. Um, you know, Andrew's situation in life, places that I've been many times, uh, not knowing what's next or choosing to go down a path of knowing where I'm going to go, but not how I'm going to get there. And we talked about that. And I want to hand it off to you, Will, because <clears throat> you got to be, you, you are a writer in Hollywood, uh, not by a normal path. Not by design, no. Right on. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. So, I mean, I came out of college in 2000, you know, height of the tech boom sort of thing and uh, had a degree in politics and economics and uh, took a job in investment banking, which, uh, if you know me, was not necessarily the best fit for my personality. So after about a year, uh, packed up a U-Haul, came down to L.A. and decided I wanted to take a swing at being a screenwriter. I had always loved movies growing up and sort of knew if I didn't try and try it, take a swing at it then, it would probably never happen. And so went from being somebody who had an assistant to being an assistant and spent about a year fetching coffee, living on canned sardines and that sort of thing. Uh, and the good thing I had going for me is that I knew that I didn't know anything. Since I didn't have a film degree, I'd never taken creative writing classes or anything like that. So uh, I think that ended up helping me a lot. Uh, fear and hunger are a powerful motivator. <laughs> and yep. so uh, just you know soaked up everything I could, would talk to anybody who'd give me advice and uh, and just started writing like crazy. I mean, the, the best advice I got was that everything you write will be better than the last thing. And the only way you'll get great is by doing it a ton. And so hopefully at some point that'll happen. But in the meantime, it's just still trying to get better. Right on. So how many years ago was that? Uh, so I came down uh, the week of September 11th, uh, 2001. Uh, so that was my first week on the job. And then booked my first movie job in 2003. And I've been writing professionally full time for the last 15 years. Wow. Awesome. So I know you, we talked earlier, 
that there's there's stuff you have in progress that you can't talk about for obvious reasons but what can you share with the folks listening as far as movies you've been involved with or actors that you've worked closely with or other other uh writers things of that nature yeah absolutely so i mean i work in movies tv uh video games and i'm writing my first novel right now um on the movie side you know work with just about everyone i've worked on the mission impossible franchise uh i'm doing an animal trafficking movie right now with leonardo dicaprio um, things set in the Congo for Ben Affleck, things like that. Um, on the TV side, most recently I was a writer producer on Shooter, uh, the USA show, and I'm creating the show, uh, The Right Stuff, based on the Tom Wolfe book for Nat Geo right now. Um, and on the game side, uh, I've worked on the Call of Duty franchise. Uh, I was, I wrote Modern Warfare Three, that Call of Duty game, and worked on the story for Advanced Warfare. Um, and so, and then a bunch of other video games, like worked on the Rainbow Six franchise and Need for Speed and stuff like that. Uh, not doing so much video game stuff these days, mostly film and TV. Boom. That's <laughs> epic, right? And he's just, he, he couldn't have, and he had no idea what we talked about earlier today either, right? And uh, he talked about that transformation process, 100%, that reinvention process of going back to from having an assistant to being an assistant. Because uh, literally what we were talking about, it's like being willing to start over means being willing to fucking start over means at the bottom. Yeah, it's you funny, know? though, how like being bad at things can be addictive. Like, you know, writing my first book right now, it's funny to go back to where I was as a screenwriter 15 years ago and, and realizing... I don't know anything about writing a book and I'm making all sorts of rookie mistakes as I'm writing it. And having been through that process and come out the other side stronger for it, I rather than being fearful about it, I find it really exhilarating. And it's, it's exciting to have a, a learning curve that's that steep in something, you know? Well, there's that. And, and I, the other point that you made um, as far as it's the I don't know any better point. Um, which I've heard many times over the years, and that's because it's someone gets into an industry where they don't have formal education and training, so they don't know any better, right? I didn't have any formal education and training on business when I started mm -hmm. my business or in the personal development space whenever I get into the personal development space. So just like you, a um, lot of hard knocks, and I've been able to hit some home runs that no one else would have hit because uh, they wouldn't think to because it's outside of the construction frameworks of – so what someone told them, you know, yep. we were talking about the perceived security. If I do it this way, I get that. And, you know, people like you, I would assume, um, are disruptive because it's like, well, no, we don't do things that way. Yeah. I mean, the best advice I got when I was starting out was that, you know, the three things that go into a successful writing career, uh, talent, luck, and hard work. And you only control one of those. And you'll only find out if you have talent, if you put in the work and you'll either get lucky or you won't. So, just focus on the work, put in the work, and then it'll either work out or it won't. So that's solid advice for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. Uh, what is it? Uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you get the people that settle in laurels. It's back to you know. There's the age-old debate: are leaders born or made? And I'm like, it's no different than saying, you know, everybody can lead. Everybody, <clears throat> assuming that we have all our you know capabilities, everybody can play soccer, but not everybody can be in the World Cup. Yeah. Right. So. The, the the hard work piece and there are people that have the gene that don't use it and people that never had it that will work their ass off right yeah absolutely <clears throat> so how is it that you guys kind of cross paths um i'm, I'm interested because i generally don't know so uh, yeah. how is it that you know we're sitting here today and i know that will has played a big role into even 
um, you know, where we are today. Why we're sitting here today. Too. How we're so sitting here today. How, yeah. how has that come about? So you, he, he gleaned over it, right? And he's like, yeah, I was a writer in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, right? With the largest netting profit release in history, right? Yeah, at the time, yeah, at yeah. The yeah. Time, it broke all the records, space, yeah. Right? And it was a freaking video game. And you were the sole writer. Yeah, there were, there were other writers who passed through on it, but I was I was the primary writer. Primary that writer, I did it, right? yeah. So I'm assuming you probably didn't know that was going to happen going into it. No, it was pretty funny. It was actually, uh, well, I went into it. I was actually hired to work on a different game that then got canceled, and the team that was working on that game then got assigned to do Modern Warfare 3. And the irony is the only reason I had taken on the other game was because I was such a huge Modern Warfare fan <laughs> that I was like, I, you know, even if I can't write Modern Warfare, I'll work on this other bootleg thing that they're doing. <laughs> wow. and so I signed up for that. And then like, actually, can we uh, move your contract over just to work on Modern Warfare 3? And for me, as a huge fan of the franchise, that would be like getting to write the next Star Wars movie or something. I mean, that was when I first played those games, it was extremely eye opening for me because the level of verisimilitude in those you know there was just so much research um that they put into those games and to see uh you know what a contemporary war would look like brought to life fictionally on screen sure. nobody in hollywood was doing that and so as somebody working in hollywood i was like oh my god like these people are telling the story the way it should be told and i would love to be telling that story too um and so before that i had just been working on like historical dramas and things uh and then through that because i was such a research junkie on those projects, I sort of took that process with Modern Warfare 3. And when I was hired, you know, they didn't have any spec ops advisors and they were doing a spec ops story. Yeah. So that was how I got to know our good mutual friend, Tom Greer. Yep. Uh, I had, I had seen his interview on 60 Minutes uh, and was like, oh my God, if anybody could advise on this, he'd be the ultimate guy. And so I, I fished around and found out that when he published his book, he had a t-shirt contest. And he had some Yahoo address from like two years ago that if you yeah, email yeah. this Yahoo address, you could, you know, get it on this T-shirt contest. So I emailed the address. and I was like, hey, man, like total shot in the dark. But like I'm doing this game. And, you know, if there's any way you talk to me about it, uh, you know, we're looking to bring somebody on. And so he wrote back. He's like, I don't trust you, Hollywood people. This is a bunch <laughs> of BS. Like, but I gather people really like your game. So uh, I'll talk to you. So he flew out. We hit it off. And then. Uh, he and I became good friends and he had, didn't have any interest in, in doing any more Hollywood things after that. He just wanted to work on that one game. Uh, but as a result of that, because of our relationship, he started introducing me to other people in his world who he thought would be good relationships to have. And so you know, that first relationship then tentacled out obviously to meeting you and your brother and, you know, a bunch more people from there. And subsequently my movie writing then transformed as a result of that. And about half the stuff I do now is espionage spec ops action stuff and the other half is still like fan fancy dramas and things like that about social yeah. issues so back to how did we meet so i'll give you kind of my side of that story right so tom greer was tom spooner uh my brother there's a lot of toms you know yeah, yeah. so on and so forth but was his first troop commander and um so after I had gotten out, and I didn't know Tom Greer at the time, he had, um, when I got to the unit, whatever, we didn't really cross paths. Um, and I, unfortunately, by the way, Tom passed away. Um, and yeah, we, I, I know that Will and I sit here and talk about him with, and with no other intent than to honor that dude. Uh, because what an amazing just human being yeah absolutely right? an epic dad epic husband epic 
freaking warrior um, actually did some stuff that I would say he got a lot of shit for that really, truth be told, was nothing more than truly courageous um, aspects of who he was. Um, at least he's got, yeah, he had my respect. And uh, because of him um, and his desire to help people, that, and he did that for folks that got out, right? Tom, I had gotten out and Tom was on his way out. Um, and because of Tom Greer, not just to you, he was literally the one point of every the entrance to all the success that me and tom Spinner both have had in business wow. everything one guy because he got me into consulting in the nuclear power industry which we used to pay a lot of bills um and then he called us now let's take it back to your question how did we meet he called tom and i and said hey i was uh i consulted on this video game little one called call of duty modern warfare and the writer's a cool dude. He's a friend of mine now, and he's got some friends, and they just want to hang out and shoot guns and do cool shit. So Tom and I have not too many nickels to rub together at the time, and we're like, this ain't free first off. And he's like, okay, they know they got to pay, but they're not going to pay what you, what I know you want to pay. I'm like, all right, <laughs> fuck, what, what, what can they do? <laughs> And we, we pretty much broker as, as, as fair a deal as we could to where we got a little profit and a little scratch. And um, these guys fly into Rock Castle Shooting Center, <clears throat> Park Mammoth Resorts, Kentucky. Nick, Nate, Noble, freaking, and we do a three-day shrimp fest with these guys. So they show up, and we literally just forge this immediate friendship with these cats who are nothing like us. One, I mean, just totally 180 out. Um and that event was uh, really cool because for many reasons. One was that um, Brian Anderson, who was a triple amputee um, and a friend of ours, had not um, had published a book not too long prior oh, yeah. called The Point of No Return. And that's where I was talking to Max about Gary Sinise wrote the, the forward to it. Um, it was super successful, and Brian and I had met because my book had just been published, and Nick and Nate had given Brian a copy of my book and vice versa. So literally, we meet over the phone, have a good talk, and we knew we had this, we used to call them fun and guns back there for them because they weren't coming for leadership development, personal development. They were coming to fun and gun. Research. <clears throat> Research, yeah. Whatever you put on your taxes is between you and your accountant, bro. I run my own business, too. Uh, research is important. We were conducting research, yeah. for the record, if there's any IRS agents out there. Um, and that's what we did is just got to know them, um, right? A writer, a uh, couple writers, uh, to, Toby managed talent, Yep. right? And we invited Brian to come hang out with us. And this was kind of a social orchestration that they didn't get a vote in. Um, there were two different things you guys didn't get a vote in. One was that y'all were going to hang out with a triple amputee. Yep. And they didn't know it. And um, when you get a chance to meet Brian, because uh, we will, like he's just one of the most epic humans you'll ever meet. The guy has one good hand. That's it. He was a uh, double amputee above the knee. And then left hand. He'll tell you the only reason he has the right hand is because he was violating protocol and smoking because he had a cigarette. And that's why he's still... As far as I know, you're still burning, brother. <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, and 
<clears throat> Brian was going to hang out with us. And we literally did that for two reasons. One, because I wanted to meet Brian, but it was two, is to let folks that live in a world that's really in a bubble, not by design. It just is that way, right? I mean, we're here in SoCal. It's mm-hmm. SoCal. Um, spend time with someone um, who is now living life that way and learn and get to a point to see Brian not see someone with one, just one, one limb. Right, and uh, when you get to meet him, you'll see it. It's just brilliant. He's like, "Hey, what the fuck? What's oh, yeah. up?" He just used to light up smoke, grab a beer. Um, he was a gymnast, amazing. I've watched that guy come out of a chair into a handstand and then put his his um, amputated sections up there, just like plop, boop. He's brilliant, right? And so that was a cool thing that happened, right? Yeah, Can yeah. You, and you, he, and you, he, you he ran circles story? around us in the three gun too. He kicked their ass. <laughs> by the way, we put him. We, we let Joe DeBurgulis push him in a wheelchair and we set up a, uh, a full stage of three gun and he fucking beat every one of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> Smoked us. He was great. Yeah. And then we became good friends. We hung out out here a bunch and stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. How, how was that though? As just from your perspective, right? From the moment of like, Hey, meet Brian, he's going to hang out and shoot with us. Like, yeah, I mean, he's a great dude. I mean, I think, I think to your point, it's like bridging the civ mill divide is really important. And ideally like, you know, that's something that we can do on a very superficial level with movies and games and things that sort of expose that culture, but there's no substitute for just getting to know people and making friends and things like that. And I mean, obviously like we live in a time where it does feel like, even if you're not talking about political divides, there are two Americas, there are the Americans who are serving and the military and the Americans who are and things like that. And the, it's really hard to bridge that gap. And I think, you know, especially as a writer, it's extremely important if you're going to try and tell stories about people to understand who those people are. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on a more selfish personal level, it's just great to make great friends, you know, and meet quality people that you want to hang out with. And so, yeah, I mean, Brian is, Brian's as great as they make him. Yeah. I mean, dude, Brian has his pilot's license. He, he snowboards, he skateboards, he surfs, he, and he doesn't, I mean, yeah, he has and he's also a big part of development in the wheelchair industry uh, and a couple big nonprofits. At any rate, Brian, we want you on the show. Uh, we'll get, we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> so we met and hung out and shot for a few days. Um, and if I could, I'd like to segue into another thing you guys didn't get a vote in, which was, um, you know, you and Tom did a podcast and he talked about the veteran experience, right? And the mm-hmm. power of healing through warriors telling their stories to society and other, not other veterans for the sake of unburdening, unburdening the load. And, um, our very first one Tom talked about was in that you know, cave, uh, up in Kentucky. And so the second time we did it was with this, these cats, their crew, anyone else we could get, um, and what we didn't know and you didn't know is we were literally figuring out and starting something that would go on to be part of healing massive amounts of people. Mm-hmm. And if you could go back in time, I don't know that I ever asked you t- totally, like, even, like, what imprint did that leave on leave on you? Because I think I told my story that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serves me. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah, I think the imprint it left on me, and I think it's interesting – bringing it up in the context of the fact that we just had an election is that like as a citizen in a democracy, you know, we elect people to make decisions on our behalf, on behalf of society. And those decisions have consequences in our personal life. We make decisions all the time and we deal with those consequences directly. Yet we elect people who choose to engage in conflicts and we send people to engage in those conflicts on our behalf. And we don't live with the consequences of that. And I think it's really important 
as American citizens that we we participate in the consequences of that and not that we should feel bad or sorry for people, but we should understand what we as a society sent them to do. And we should ideally take as much of that burden on as we can, you know, and, and obviously participate in the healing process if there's a role for us to play, you know, and I think that was the really profound transformation for me coming out of that was feeling a a real sense of duty and responsibility and culpability with, with you and your brother as people who had, who had done things on behalf of me as a citizen, you know, whether I made the decisions or not, you know? Yeah, man, that's, that was pretty awesome little (laughs) bow you put on that. It's kind of gave you a whole new perspective on the veterans, maybe on, or the warrior's role in society and how it relates to how America has become divided. Yeah. Um, it's just a fact, right? Um, and, and that's a byproduct to me of this triad as you, you, talked about right society the government and the warrior yeah right and then what gets forgotten is that this you know these folks elected these folks and then then it's like how the fuck are you gonna have any judgment over here yeah right and then then there's folks take that to extreme oh so you're just mindless fucking mindless right you just it's back to having the conversation yeah around what reality is right right? but we only we can only defend ourselves if we have a functioning chain of command the chain of command ends with civilian elected officials and we elect those officials. And so ultimately we have a direct line of responsibility to the things that we send people to do and yeah. to taking care of the consequences of that of those actions. Right. And the consequences that, you know, I, I know you're talking about, right. Is taking care of folks after the, you know, after the war, after yeah. they come home when they're done. Right. Well, you guys engage in really emotionally traumatic and physically traumatic activities, you know, that sort of, the nature of the job and for us to not acknowledge that, that that is going to come home with you and be something that we all need to participate in, in helping out with is, I think is, is irresponsible on our parts if we don't, if we don't feel that. Right on. Yeah. It was just, it's cool to, to have been able to have, be able to look back and go, wow, look what that turned into. I mean, that Tom uses that at warrior's heart. We used it. Um, I've got a buddy, Kelly, that was going through a lot. Literally took him in that same cave. He told his story and left their lighter and gave him the entry point into greater healing. Yeah, and it seems like there's also oftentimes an instinct on the part of the warrior to not want to burden society sure. with their stuff. It's like, you know, I chose this job. I, I went off to do these things. You don't have to wear that. And that, you know, that also increased the divide. So I think you guys choosing to open up and bridge that gap definitely started a conversation that for me has been going on ever since. Right. And so let's take it to the light side of that relationship and, and really parlays. I'm not going to go deep into what I coined as the cycle of freedom, uh, which is what we lack right now is overall reverence for all aspects of this cycle of freedom that we have created, that we have as a society and everyone has a role in it. Um, and it's not so much as it's getting out of the judgment. It's like, okay, if you hadn't have been following your own passion, right? Right. Following your own heart, you wouldn't have been in the position that you're in right now, which literally led to me being able to have a successful business. Right. Right. And I don't say that tongue in cheek. I'm a connect the dots guy. Like everything, yeah, yeah. I, I believe everything happens for a reason. There's a purpose in all things. And I, it's my job in life to assign that purpose. Right. So one of the purposes in meeting you was that I met Jeremy. Right, right, right. You're a best friend, 
who said, let's get back to saying yes when you're in times of the unknown. Say yes. Jeremy says, you need to meet my mentor. I say yes, I'll meet anybody. And so his mentor, right, worked for Steve Jobs at Apple. One of the board members there was this chief town officer for, you know, uh, J.C. Penney for Ron Johnson at the time. And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to meet that guy, right? Um, and then Dan walked me in, got me, you know, a, a first pitch with Red Bull. First, you know, just all comes back to right here, right? Saying yes. Um, and that's the light and really cool side of our story is that, <clears throat> you played that that role in it, right? If I hadn't, if we, right, right. I mean, you invited us to come out to LA. It's like, all right, cool, let's go. You meet more people. You meet more people. That was Tom and I's line <laughs> back then. It was just like, hey, let's go meet people. Um, and literally over six years, right, to the point of, of the, you know, for me, a massively successful consulting company. I'm getting ready. We're getting ready to launch our first digital product. We're sitting here in SoCal podcasting at a house on the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're writing for magnificently successful people, had huge success, two kids, like, boom, man. Yeah, and I think the other part of it, you know, for me is like you and I have never worked together professionally on anything since then. That Like, that was never what it was about. And I think, like, part of it is that, like, you put yourself out there and, you know, you make a lot of great friends along the way. And that's also, that's its own reward. And that's obviously more important than any of the other stuff. And it's like, for me, it's like, I, I love putting myself out there in my research. I go very far down the rabbit hole. And it's like, my son is named after somebody that I met on a research trip, you know, on a random project that I took on. And yeah, it's one of my best friends It's coming to town tomorrow. You know, it's like those funny connections that you make and some of them lead to great business opportunities and some are just friendships and arguably the latter, have a more meaningful impact on your life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll just to like bring it back to even, you know, a little bit more about your story. Um, you know, why writing as like, even to take it back to like the passion of it, you know, you said you were a big movie buff or, you know, really loved cinema and that kind of thing. Like why writing? And then why is that still even in, in, it's cool to hear that it branched out even into now, like novel form. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where'd that come from? You know, it's funny. It's like those things that you you couldn't see looking forward in life, but in looking back, you know, I, I think it makes sense. Like as a kid, I always loved telling stories. My hobby since I was eight years old until today is like has always been doing magic and things like that. Uh, which you know, every magic trick is its own little narrative. And then, like I by nature am a serial hobbyist. Like I'm not somebody who is like the best at one thing, but like. I sail boats. I do the, the, you know, the guns with you guys and, you know, magic. And I'm a pretty competent tiki bartender, you know, and all sorts of various (laughs) things like that. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, jack of all trades. And so I think, you know, for me with writing, uh, it's, it's very much suited to that personality type and that I get to drop into a world, try and develop a level, level of, you know, mastery and competence in that world so that I can write people who live in that world. Um, and then, you let it go and then you go into something new. And so, you know, at any given time I might be working on something about the deep web and it's like working with crypto anarchists and people like that, trying to understand the vernacular of what they do. And then you're writing a true story about special operations in the eighties and you're like, okay, how did people speak? You know, everything like that. Um, and then, you know, I'm right now working on an 1870s bank robbery story. So it's like, I've got to understand what was going on at that time and how are banks being robbed. And, and just, you know, it's a very sort of fun way to bounce around and immerse in, in different things. And, you know, I think one of the things I've always loved about writing in the genres that I write in is, um, it's like, 
it's not I'm not somebody who's always had these stories I need to get out like and all these personal things I'm I know I want to say it's more like falling in love it's like I don't know what I want to write next until that thing comes along and then you realize that something about that has always been in you that you wanted to to connect with uh you know and so you know right now I'm working on like the right stuff and that's you know about uh the mercury program obviously where it's like we were at a point where uh, America was getting beaten up every day by the Russians and there was a sense that we as a nation were a nation in decline and that we were no longer capable of great things and then yet we as a nation banded together and pulled off what would ultimately become mankind's greatest feat which was the moon landing and so you know for me looking at you know where we are as a country right now and and the sense that you know we have these questions about whether our best days are behind us or in front of us writing a story about a time when people felt that way and how they pulled through it I can connect with on a very personal level. And so, um, you know, and similarly, it's like if I'm, I was working on this mercenary story set in the Congo for Ben Affleck, and it was about a character who was, you know, struggling with his own obsolescence and things like that. And like, obviously, as, you know, as a father and somebody who's reaching a certain point in my life, it's like you start to say, like, oh, what can I explore about myself in these characters? And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, it would probably be too much to say that it's therapeutic for me, but I really just love that process of getting to dive and explore different aspects of myself and different aspects of the world. And I'm also a total junkie for the adventure of it. I mean, like I was in the North uh, in March, I was in the North pole with the Navy doing submarine exercises. Um, last month I was in Florida with air force spec ops. Uh, when I was doing the animal trafficking project, I spent a month on the road in eight different countries, buying and selling animal parts, learning how animals were trafficked on the black market. Um, and you know, so it was like one of those things where nobody really knows how animals are trafficked. So to write a story about that, you have to go really deep into that world and you ended up getting, detained for a little bit of time in a place where I shouldn't have been. Um, and you know, I think for me that that's always been, been really exciting. And it was part of the excitement of working on the special operations stuff is I just didn't know anything about that world going into it and then going and learning the language, learning how people move and operate, learning what people care about, what they really motivate. It's always surprising. You know, you go in having seen movies like saving private Ryan and things like that. And then you realize that those stories were authentic to a time and to a certain character, but it's like, you know, you weren't drafted, you weren't fighting the Nazis, you were not in a big green army unit when you were doing your stuff. And so how was your experience unique? Um, and, you know, not to go on and on, but I think, you know, one thing that I've no, found- man, good stuff. Go, right, brother. One thing I found in my writing is like the, uh, you know, ideally it's about, storytelling is about truth, right? Like we tell stories so that we can reach some essential truth about some experience. And I find that like, it's for me, it's not about the facts, but the research leads to facts and you can't have truth without facts. So it's like you do all the research, you gather all the facts, you formulate an opinion about the truth, and then you let go of the research and the facts and try and explore that truth that's based on facts, you know, because ultimately I'm not making documentaries, mm -hmm. but if I'm writing a character who is experiencing things like what you've experienced, the only way to write that character is to understand the facts of what you and your brother and other folks have experienced and then sure. try and try and compile that or distill it rather into something, something essential that you want to explore. Dude, I just learned more about you in the last 15 <laughs> minutes or however. I mean, I could listen for another hour because it's super intriguing to me. Right. 
And I think if what if you heard anything, you talked to a guy who was an investment banker who's a super passionate storyteller, right? And he followed that passion. That's, that's just badass. And, like, I've always been impressed with your success, but it was super cool to sit here because we've never had that conversation right there. Right, right. right? Like, hey, what makes you, you know, what makes you tick? I, that's what, you know, Nate asked a question that I'd never asked. So I was like a fucking little kid. I'm like, <laughs> that's cool as shit, man. Because I'm sitting there like, yeah, I used to geek out on explosives like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I learn all the aspects of everything. Now I geek out on, you know, spiritual, whatever it is. I'm like you, it's like I find something and it's like I love figuring out how it works. Yeah, and sometimes. And like why it, it works. Yeah, and I love like subcultures and narratives with within subcultures you know and I'll come across these things and all of a sudden I'll just get like obsessed so like for the last like four months I've been obsessed with like American tiki culture right because like I started learning about it and <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing what like. is American tiki culture <laughs> so it's actually tell. incredible so it's incredible it's incredible so and it was like it's one of these things I'll never find I'm desperately trying to find a story to write in that world because I love it so much but basically uh, in like the 30s and 40s, uh, you had all these people who were hearing all these stories about the Pacific and places like that, but didn't have enough money to travel. And there was this guy, this like crazy dude from Texas who had traveled the world and collected all these artifacts from like all over the place. And he decided to open a bar that would be like a vacation in a bar. And it fused like rum from the Caribbean with iconography from Oceania and like South Pacific and Moais from Easter Island with like Japanese floats and like fishing shit from the Northeast. All this stuff that didn't make any sense, smashed it all together. And this became tiki culture. It was it was like nostalgia for something that didn't exist. And he legally changed his name to Don Beach, called his bar Don the Beachcombers and invented all these drinks that were like drinks that he thought if you were in a tropical place, you should be drinking, but that didn't exist in these tropical places because all the rum was in the Caribbean and all the fruit was in the Pacific that he was like using and stuff. So he just fabricated the shit out of nowhere. And then all these other people started making all these like drinks like that and copying them. And he had Chinese food. So they had to have Chinese food. No reason to have Chinese food at a tiki bar, but why not? So they all started copying it. And then all of a sudden people were going to Hawaii and being like, wait a minute, there's no Mai Tais here. Like, well, yeah, well, the Mai Tai was invented in California. Like, all this stuff was from California. <laughs> so, you know, and the missionaries in Hawaii had had made a point of erasing all the Polynesian culture, Polynesian architecture, and stuff like that. So, all of a sudden, in the 50s, they start having to build all these, like, Polynesian structures and setting up, like, tiki joints in Hawaii and places like that and exporting it to the places that it was ostensibly referencing. So I just love the idea that you had this whole like crazy culture and like all the music was like this weird white guy bachelor pad music. It was all like, uh, you know, it's all like stone age adventures for the space age generation. And, uh, you know, so I got like super deep into it, like way of all about it. And so this sounds like it should be a series, by the way. I know. I'm like, I mean, if you, so if you merge 90210 with Tiki culture, what would you have? Yes. Right. Yeah. You taught me that. I think that's the Hollywood thing. Will taught me that because I was early on in, in, in our bromance. We had talked about like, hey, we should do something. I don't know what. Like, I've written silly shit and sent it to him or whatever. But he was like, no, Scott, you have to merge. Like in Hollywood, we say, you know, this, this is Transformers 
meets Madagascar. <laughs> Fucking whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Writes itself. Right? And I would be like, oh, okay, so that's a transformer in the shape of a lemur. All right, awesome. Who here is attracted to me? So he taught me, he's like, you have to talk in these analogies that are the emergence of two things that are going to birth out what it is we're going to talk about. Right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so but it's just funny because we all paying attention that yeah. you come from a very limited pool to actually reference, and that's a, a, a I mean, I have de- I, I understand deployment movies. I know them well. If you want to talk Tombstone, Pulp Fiction, <laughs> things of this nature, we we'll give line for line. What's that? Madagascar is a bad movie. Oh, Madagascar's great. <laughs> He's got his kids aren't old enough yet. He'll get it. He'll get there. So, I find in your world that one of the more divisive films is the expendable series like people tend to either love it or not love it where do you yeah. fall on that i'm down yeah <laughs> yeah i'm down yeah I like it uh, yeah i'm down yeah it's it, it's it's good stupid okay yeah and because it's more escapist like because there's other yeah, movies that we won't trying, discuss that right? you've been concerned you know. tried to be realistic but weren't realistic yeah it's like i mean that's like i dig uh it was uh, fucking Tropic Thunder, right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, just, yeah. Just fucking go big. Nick Nolte, come on. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Nuts. And uh, all of it. Like, I'm, I'd rather have it go that direction than, um, let's say... Uh, A war movie that's not realistic. Like Hurt Locker. Yeah. Well, okay. it yeah. was interesting to me because, like, <laughs> I even bring that up because even, like, up to meeting Scott, and it goes back, right back to what you were saying as far as, like, you have the civilian culture, you have the, you know, the military culture, the veteran culture. And, you know, for me, like very into movies, not on a technical standpoint, but like just a, just a huge fan and spell like throw in a military affinity and like, boom. So see everything that comes out. And even like going through, um, a couple like, you know, some college courses that are talking about like what a war films like outline is. Uh, Okay. That's what like to a T and all that. So I come out, I'm like, shit, like to me in my novice eyes I'm like damn like Hurt Locker hits all these things and I was like and 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 so for me like when looking at it that way I was like yeah I mean to me I don't know anything about realistic but I was like that checks a ton of boxes I'm like as far as like what a war film looks like could be totally wrong um and then to come out and like he literally told me the story of like yeah that's like the stupidest movie ever made and I was like one best picture. Like, yeah, it is funny. It, it's funny that it's such a that it's such a divisive film because you know people, you know, in the movie industry, like myself, I'm like it's a flawlessly told story, mm-hmm. flawlessly directed, flawlessly acted, yeah. and then you talk to people in that world, like, yeah, but he wouldn't do that in the suit, you know, or whatever. And it's like yeah. for me, I'm like, okay, I felt all the things I want to feel watching a movie. Oh, and see, so, you know, what's funny is I'm the asshole when it comes to those, and Tom's the total entertainment guy, <laughs> and, and so Tom. Also, little Tom, you're not here, but I'm going to give up a little secret on you. Tom also likes to read books about wizards and dark magic. Oh, yeah. He loves magic. Yeah, he does, man. He's, it's, it's, it's funny as shit. You should have seen him that. at the Magic love, Castle. He's a weirdo, right? Um, yeah. And and so, um, oh, but fuck, where were we at? Movies, Hurt Locker. No, you oh, yeah. So, Tom likes so, entertainment. And so, yeah, he's yeah. a guy. He's like, who gives a shit, right? And. He's a total non-critic, right? But he's also a gamer. I wasn't a gamer. I don't know. I'm the critic. And he's like, dude, I, I'm there to be entertained. So to your point, you asked Tom. He's like, it's great. I was entertained. He talks about dark elves a lot. He does. God, this is rock nuts. trolls. Yeah, he'll tell you. Fucking Back rock. That he, he will, dude, he will, like, if he even bring up rock trolls, he'll be like, 
Hey, man. Well, fuck with rock trolls. <laughs> He's that serious. Last time we were on a trip together, we had, and had the, the pleasure of all three of us being in one hotel room, in a seedy hotel room in Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> fucking red leather and stainless steel. I'm Mirror telling you. Ceilings. Mirrors everywhere. Yeah. Um, and Tom's over there quietly doing his bedtime ritual and routine, right? Because he's, cl- he's kind of like the classic freaking Rain regimented. Man. Like regimented, yeah. yeah, but it's it's pretty, it's Rain Man-ish. And so, but he's reading this part of it. And then he's like, hey, I want you all to listen to this right here. And he will begin to read, but he's quoting one of his favorite characters. Like, and when he does it, he does it with such enthusiasm and just brilliance. And when he's done, he'll just get quiet again and he keeps reading. Like he just drops knowledge on us from, (laughs) from the wizards. And then back he goes. He's like the mouse in the teapot in Alice in Wonderland. He just pops up. Yeah. Drops the knowledge. Yeah. The best back part down. is it's hard for like I'm not I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. It's not funny. It's it's <laughs> I, I I I admire so much the passion. And then like you said earlier, like, hey. Rock trolls fuck you up, dude. <laughs> Yo, yeah. You don't mess with rock trolls. Yeah, yeah. Like, I won't. Oh, he right. he'll tell you the lineage. He's like, Oh yeah, she's half serpent. Her, her her mother had you know dark was taken over a dark like night came over and so she's period. you know and he'll give you the lineage and run down yeah. wow it's a book that's like 900 pages yeah. too it's like yeah. how do you sit here and read this I know he made it through high school without reading a book just like me so he reads a lot now that's awesome <laughs> learn a lot so Andrew you've now spent all day with us which is really awesome um and was super podcasting with you earlier. And I think for sure there's some things that came out of Will's story and things we've talked about that parlayed back in. And not that we need to go there, but kind of you've been sitting over there taking this in. I just want to toss you the mic for a minute. I think the the coolest thing listening to his story is how much passion he has yeah. to getting into learning about what he's writing about. Like actually submerging himself in all that content and almost mentally putting himself in that time era yeah. to, to speak to actually understand everything is, is amazing. Like that just blew my socks away. I think what the coolest part too is just to see – just also coming across somebody that has such is, – is, is in and doing something and went out and, and has now worked their way to the point that they are doing something so much that they love and are passionate about. Like it's always cool to be around those people because um, that's the minority of people, I would, I would, sure. I would think. Um, uh, it's a gift to have and, a and career, always, a passion turn career. Right. And it's always cool to, to even to hear that story as well as far as like not starting out on that and, and taking that leap even if it's early on to like, I want to see this through. Yeah, it's it's been great. I mean, it's you know really fun too. As somebody who loves stories, I have a, like now an excuse to ask people about their stories too. You know, so like like learning about the space program, getting like to track down the nurse to the Mercury guys, who's like wow. you know still alive, still super sharp, and you know was like happy to share all of her stories about all the hijinks with the astronauts and stuff. And you just have those moments where you're like pitching yourself, and you're like, wow, I'm sitting here talking to somebody who in the 1950s was like working with the dudes who we were going to send up space or um you know or moments where it's like some hacker wants to meet up with you in like an underground basement hot tub at like some weird spa in koreatown and it's like 
you know, you end up like naked having some conversation about hacking at two in the morning. You know, some of the research gets pretty crazy. When in Rome. When in Rome. Like, how long yeah. does a research, like, what's the time frame? Like, how long does that take you? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the thing. I mean, you know, if it's like uh, doing a fictional special operations story now, I, I, I'm sort of online with that. I know how to tell stories in that world. Usually well, it's old hat for wellness. Oh, it's old hat. <laughs> yeah. uh, in my sleep. But you know, if it's some new world, especially a world that's really a specific subculture, which is own with its own vernacular, it usually takes me about a month. I mean, the animal thing, I spent 30 days on the road in Northern Thailand, uh, the golden triangle area of like Myanmar and Laos is in Hanoi, Macau, Hong Kong doing, uh, anti-poaching operations in Mozambique and South Africa. Like, you know, just because you're trying to write people that live in a very specific world. And if you don't tell those stories, right, what's the point of telling them? Because the whole point is to expose an issue. Um, so yeah, it usually takes about a month. Uh, some can take longer though, if it's something that's really inaccessible or something really sprawling. Yeah. I was about to ask like, what was like, what was like the biggest struggle you had to connect with? As uh, the, topic? the hardest, the most, the one where I was the most, lost was the animal thing because it was one of those things where I got hired. There were these three actors who were wanting to produce a movie to star in together because they were all really passionate about the issue. And I came on to do it, uh, and then realized very quickly that, um, you know, that with animals, so animal trafficking is like narcotics where production happens in the third world distribution happens in the second world and consumption happens in the first world with drugs. We know about Coke being grown in South America. We know that distribution happens in Mexico and we know that it's purchased in, you know, LA and New York, wherever Hermosa beach. And, uh, hypothetically speaking, but with animals, once I was hired, I was like, okay, we've all, there's no, because it's not a law enforcement priority priority. There's very little known about it. So we've seen a bunch of like great national geographic magazines about like sad animals being slaughtered in Africa. You've seen stories about animals in markets in China, like the animal parts there. But that's like if all you knew about cocaine was South America and North America and you didn't know about the cartels in Mexico, right. you'd be missing the biggest piece of the story. And it was the same thing with animals. And it turns out that all the uh, transshipment points uh, are in, you know, mostly in the Golden Triangle and Vietnam. And because, I mean, if you think about it, you have stuff coming from Africa and ending up in Asia. That's like a very, not just a big geographic divide, but a cultural divide and a language divide. So how is it getting from A to B? Right. And that was like a really challenging connection to, to understand. And so, you know, it involved everything from like going into warlord controlled regions of Myanmar and buying, you know, rhino horn chunks and then sending those chunks to a lab in South Africa and Pretoria where this woman has like DNA samples from every rhino that's been killed in South Africa and actually matching the samples, of the individual rhinos that were killed wow. and knowing when it was killed and, that, and somehow in five days it made it to this place. And so, you know, a lot of it was just trying to understand that world. And then the one that took the most time was, uh, was this, you know, the right stuff, the space story, just because it's such a big story and it's such it's a story that a lot of people have a lot invested in, in terms of their own curiosity about the passion. It's a very technical world. Um, so, you know, that one is like flying to Cape Canaveral to go to launches and meeting with astronauts, uh, going to Houston and meeting with astronauts there, uh, going, 
you know, all over to Edwards Air Force Base and meeting with all the test pilots. You have to understand test pilot culture and then meeting all the survivors of that era. And and then also just trying to, you know, talk to people who were alive then. And, you know, why did this story matter to you? Why did you care? Um, and, you know, as always, the truth is always like so much stranger than fiction. You get into these things yep. and people just start telling you these like crazy stories. And most of the time you're I like... I bet the nurse had some good ones. <laughs> <laughs> she had some amazing ones. She had some really good ones. Um, I mean, one of the one of the amazing moments she was talking about was like, so, you know, she was the only woman at the Cape when they were opening up astronaut operations in Cape Canaveral. Uh, and so, you know, here she was with these guys and she had such a close relationship with them and she would fight with like cats and dogs with these guys. They were all these like very alpha male dudes. Some of them had sort of misogynistic streaks Sure, sure. and she, you know, wouldn't take their crap. But when the surgeons would come in, these guys were heroes. They were gods to them. And so the surgeons would like go to draw blood and their hands would be shaking because they'd be so nervous. They'd be like, oh my God, this is Alan Shepard. Like I'm drawing Alan Shepard's blood. And they'd be like, no, 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 get, get Dee O'Hara back in here because she's the only one with a steady hand because she didn't care. And you know, those sorts of fun things. And like, you know, they were always pranking each other. Um, And you know, she, she told these, this like a beautiful story about how when Shepard, uh, went to space and became the first American in outer space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he came back down, splashes down in the Caribbean. And, you know, obviously the first thing they have to do is like all the medical checkouts and stuff sure. like that. And so there was this like myth that this guy was off partying and celebrating and doing all this stuff because that's what America was doing. But in reality, like he was having these like private moments with her and she sort of talked about this, like the night that America was finally in the game in the space race. And it's just like her and Al Shepard hanging out. Wow. And like, here's this like young woman who's in her twenties who, you know, while these guys would be opening, you know, baseball games and doing ticker tape parades, you know, because she was the nurse, the astronaut, she'd be opening like the local supermarket, you know, and things like that. And uh, it was just like one of those parts of history where you're like, wow, this is a, this is a really interesting story. And as a storyteller, you're like, that's the story you want to tell, wow. you know, and how, how those people relate. Uh, Cause I'm not interested in the myths. I'm more interested in the myth making and like, what was the story behind the story and not any sort of like hatchet job, but like, people are people you know and yeah. what's what's beneath all that and i think that was what also attracted me to tom wolf's book when i was uh trying to put together the tv project based on it is that his his book was very much about the myth making of the american astronaut and the idea that it was our first reality show um and the idea that we created these celebrities we called them astronauts we put them on the cover of life magazine before they ever did anything. And we put all of our hopes and dreams in these people and made them these larger than life guys who in reality were just test pilots who were going through a barrage of tests and had never done anything to earn that fame. And I think that was something else. I know I'm going way off on a tangent, but that connected me to that story. <laughs> That's cool though. Uh, you know, it, now that we live in reality culture, it's like, how can you tell a story in the past and connect to the present? And we live in a culture where everybody wants to be famous for being famous. And these are the first people who are famous for being famous. And it was a competition show. It was like American Idol. Like from a pool of 200, 30 will go to the clinic. And from those 30, only seven will be the Mercury 7. And from those seven, only three will be the final three. But who will be number one? And number one's Al Shepard, you know? And it was like a, a wild time. And like, you know, the president at the time was America's greatest reality star, you know, JFK. Uh, somebody who understood how to navigate fame. And, uh, you know, I just find that those ways that history repeats itself really exciting to explore but yeah so that one was just a monster to get into <laughs> there you go man 
So I, I you, think, no, no one was planning on it, but we got a little bit of a history lesson. We've got a writing lesson. We've got a lesson in how to conduct research at a badass level, like yeah. for real, right? <laughs> the other really thing is funny cool about stuff. the research is like you know you were talking about how these relationships end up like you meet so and so, and then you just never know, but you have to put yourself out there. I mean, for me, that's like the research. That's what I mean. It's like yep. I wouldn't be into tiki bars if I hadn't been researching the right stuff, and like I got hired to do like a thing set in the Congo and then I was out at like a shooting range with some spec ops buddies and they were like and we saw some dude in shorts and sandals like shooting at the end of the range and I was like that guy's dangerous we got to talk to him it turned out he was like this crazy Australian guy who was doing anti-poaching stuff in Africa and uh and I was like oh my god I'm actually doing uh a story set there right now can you help me out and he's like yeah, yeah, sure. And I said, like, where are you staying when you're in town? And he had just started this organization, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. This was like six years ago, which is now a huge uh, nonprofit helping animals. Nice. But at the time, he was just starting out. He had uh, like sold a bunch of property. He had been like Australian Special Forces and a mercenary and then gave it all up, became a vegan and was like, I'm going to help the animals. So like, where are you staying? And he's like, I'm staying at a hostel on Hollywood Boulevard. And I was like, oh, man, fuck that. Like, my wife's out of town. Come stay at my house. <laughs> so next thing I know, it's like giant, crazy vegan is staying at my house. Help me out with this thing. And he was like, hey, man, I heard uh, DiCaprio's really into uh, the animals. And he's doing this movie about the animal stuff. And so I introduced him to people who worked at Leonardo DiCaprio's company, you know, so that he could make that connection in the event that there was any way that wow. he could help them out. And they were like, actually, you know, we have an intention of doing this project, but we don't have a script or a writer. And he's like, oh, this guy, Will, I know, knows more about this stuff than anyone. <laughs> so then he ended, so then I went in and, and met with them. And then they hired me. And, of course, I knew nothing about animals. <laughs> so then it was like, had to go and do the animal trafficking research. And, uh, and, that, and that's Damien, who my son is named after. Wow. I'll be damned. Yeah, so it's like funny, small world. And we've been like thick as thieves ever since. That's One awesome. thing that I would ask, too, is like it's super refreshing as someone that loves movies. And, and even not only movies, but, you know, true stories told and not necessarily that you're it's writing true stories but to write stories that are truthful in the way that they're told i guess i mean it would you say that that is something that would you say that your passion to research and get things right is something that's consistent throughout hollywood or that it's more than rare i, I would not i would say and i'm I, know, I wouldn't say that uh it makes me superior in any way i think different people their passion comes from different places. Like some people love comic books and the mythological nature of those stories, a sort of larger than life character dynamics. And they're less interested in the texture and verisimilitude and things like that. And so those folks are really well suited to write, you know, superhero things. And if when I try and do superhero stuff, I'm like, well, I don't know the physics and I get like really spun out, not connecting with that <laughs> mode of storytelling. Uh, you know, whereas other people, there's certain sorts of emotional things that they're interested in exploring in a really deep way and they don't really care how they get there as long as that emotional experience is something that they're exploring or they love the genre like the horror genre stuff okay but well, i'm gonna i'm gonna let me step in here so that even being said the people who write those still would have to go study the comic book world and and culture i would think right? yeah so i think more so is like hey i mean it's not about being humble just be truthful as a as a rule would you you know say that people do as much research you do for every movie we see 
Somebody somewhere probably is on each of them. I mean, some writers don't do a ton of research. It's just not their process. It's not how they like to. I mean, like some writers will go and watch every movie that's ever existed in that genre to understand how to tell something that genre well. And that's their really deep research process. And there are other people for whom it's a more uh, sort of instinctual process. And I think it's for them. It's about uh, sort of searching within themselves for, for what they want to do. And that's just not not my process. Um, I find that I sort of need to just gather all the stuff and then see what, what emerges from it. It's almost like natural selection, you know, kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so I, I think a lot of people come at it from different ways. I think the people in general, the people who last are the people who work super hard. I mean, there's a reason that there aren't many. And there's your answer. I mean, like, well, I mean, really, I mean, that's the key, right? Yeah. It's like you go Google your, your favorite movies and who wrote them. They're all, written by people over 40 and it's not because they weren't discovered until then or whatever you know you, there might be one or two exceptions you know there's some people who are just like crazy and have some bizarro talent like you know tarantino who just has his own thing that he's always the outlier. done I mean, yeah the outliers the, the yeah. exception but for the most part it's like yeah you go and look up who wrote you know saving private ryan or any of these movies or gladiator and things like that it's like stories that people really love unforgiven it's like these are not like somebody who just showed up and figured it out. They're people who wrote a lot of crap probably for a very long time and then eventually got really good at what they do and are masters of their craft. Um, You know, I think there's with writing in particular, people talk a lot about whether somebody's a talented writer or not. And you don't really get that with like special operations or even professional sports. Like somebody's talented in professional sports, but it's not like, oh, he's 13 and talented and we should put him in the pros. Like, oh, he's 13 and maybe with 10 years of hard work, he'll be a great pro or something, you know? And so I think uh, it's it's always been something that sort of bothered me about the way people perceive the craft of writing is that there are people who are talented, people who aren't. And it's like the reality is if you watch the Academy Awards every year, it's people who have yeah. put in the time. Yeah, I have no level of comparison to the way of time, but for me, I love to write. I consider myself a writer now. Yeah. And I'm a guy that started writing 15 years ago. I'm 44, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it, I wasn't born with it, and I believe I sucked at it. I don't know how good I am now, but I know at one point I sucked, and I don't suck anymore. Yeah, and we'll both be better at it in five years than we are now. It's yeah, like 100%. Like for me, it's like my only rule for writing is that everything I write has to be better than the last thing. Like that's all that's, you know, I've got that little mechanical bunny and I want to keep it a little bit in front of me the whole way. I don't want to catch it, you know? Um, and it's, I mean, it's exciting. It's a nice challenge. It's nice to, to be in a profession where, you know, you don't ever have to peak. Um, you know, it's like you look at like Cormac McCarthy writing like Blood Meridian and all these like crazy novels and the road and stuff. And the dude is like definitely a little older than I am. And it's like, okay, yeah, because he's just been getting better and better and better and better and better. And, you know, now he's just a monster, you know? Right on. Nate, you going to take us home? That is. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. Well, fucking get to it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I mean, Will, just really appreciate, you know, your time and and sharing all that. Uh, You know, it's, I think it was fun for all of us, you know, not only to hear the, the, you know, the details of everything, but also to really feel the passion that, you know, that, you know, you kind of, that you're able to get out of every day. Um, so, and I know I, I, I'd like to thank, you know, my good buddy Andrew too for being here and, and throughout the day sure. and all that. That'll wrap us up for the Original Freedom Podcast. Check us out, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at BOGFree and uh, our website at OGFree.com. Thanks for joining us here again and uh, we'll see you again next time.